Well, we know, uh, chapter 5, uh, we know that our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved. We have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened. Not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that has wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who has also given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your conscience. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that you may have somewhat to answer them, which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judged, that if one died for all, then were all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live in themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth we know him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. For he has made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Uh, let's pray. Father, I thank you for... The last few weeks, as you have uh, just opened up these truths to my heart, and the uh, Holy Spirit, I know that it's your desire as we come together tonight to just uh, manifest Christ to us even more, that we would be uh, challenged by your word, that we would be changed by it, and Lord, as we leave this place tonight, that these truths uh, would not just fall upon our ears, we'd forget about them and go our way, but they would be lasting in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. Uh, we love you, and we thank you so much, God, for all that you do. Guide our thoughts. I pray you'd keep me from straying from what you desire to be said, and this would be a time of great building up, uh, of challenging and growth in all of our lives. For I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I know it's been a while. Does anybody remember what I preached on last time? If you, if you, keep, uh, <laughs> if you keep notes. Okay, that's, that's okay, because my kids, the whole time I preached, I said, good message, Dad, what did I preach on? Uh, well, uh, 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 so anyway, I preached about salt and light, 
about our influence that we have uh, in this world, uh, a silent influence as well as a vocal uh, influence. Now, kind of this, these couple chapters that we're going to be talking about tonight um, are somewhere along that line, uh, but probably more so personal as well. So uh, as you look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, Paul begins to talk about the new covenant. Okay, uh, He talks about how this new covenant that we have in Christ is so much more glorious than the old covenant. Okay, uh, Of course, uh, he talks about some of the uh, terminology of the tabernacle, you know, where they would go in there one man, one day of the year, would get to go behind the curtain to the mercy seat right there in the presence of God. That's it. And under this new covenant, when Christ died, of course, he tore the veil and said, basically, any man, any woman, at any time can boldly come to the throne of grace and just receive what they need. And so Paul talks about that in chapter 3, just how glorious this gospel is. And he moves on into chapter 4, and he begins to talk about how God has written this new covenant on our hearts. Okay, He talks about the, the contrast from the Old Testament to where it was written on stone. Okay? And so they would look at these, these, these commandments and they memorize them. They'd try to live by them. But then Christ came and now he's written his law in our hearts. As, and he, he's in us. It's actually in an abiding presence that they didn't have under the old uh, covenant. You, you see sometimes in the Old Testament that you know, God would come upon men. Uh, they were anointed Saul when he was king and God would come upon him with the Spirit, and, and that, that's done away with in Christ. When the Spirit of God comes upon a believer, now He takes up residence in us, and He will be in us until we see Him face to face. And so He, he talks about this uh, through there. He says in uh, chapter 4, verse 7, we have this treasure, this, this new covenant in earthen vessels. Okay? It's, it's right here in us. As, as frail as these vessels are, yet God has chosen to take up residence in us. And this new covenant is vastly different than the old in that respect because Paul tells the Colossians, he says in uh, Colossians 1.27, he says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay? This, this radical change that God does under the new covenant that was not that way in the old covenant. And it's, it's very important that we understand the distinction in that tonight because I believe that uh, churches, uh, people that have professed Christ, there are, are many, as Jesus said, uh, that are not going to get to go to heaven even though they believe He is who He said He is and even though they work and do things uh, to, to follow Him. And if you're familiar with the passage I'm talking about, Matthew chapter 7. Jesus is speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. He says in chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Okay? But he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many shall say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, and in your name cast out devils, and in your name done many wonderful works? And so these were not people that were just out there not doing anything, saying, oh, I believe in God. These were people that were actively doing things for God. They believed that Jesus was Lord. This is the, the picture that Christ has given. And then he says to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I mean, that's some heavy stuff. 
And, and so when we think about that as, as Christians, we're thinking, so you're telling me that somebody can believe the right things and actually do stuff for God and be lost? That's what Christ says. Christ says, there's going to be people that call me Lord, that do all these things in my name, but I don't know them. They have never had something happen to them that must happen. And of course, we know that's what Jesus told Nicodemus. Ye must be born again. And for my personal life, I was about 12 years old when I can remember the first time that I was under conviction and I, to some degree, understood the gospel. We had watched a movie at church. I was under conviction because I didn't understand why they had done this to Jesus because in my young mind, I was like, he didn't do anything wrong. I mean, the whole movie, you see him doing right and loving people and coming to die for their sins, and then they killed him. And so when I went home that night, I asked mom and dad about it, and uh, they tried to explain the gospel. Maybe I wasn't getting it or they weren't presenting it. Well, I don't remember all that. But I do remember the next Sunday, they told me to go forward at invitation. I went forward. Pastor handed me a clipboard. I filled it out. They baptized me the next week, and I was a member of the church. And so probably for the next few years, until I got to be a teenager, you know, I went to church. I sang in the youth choir. Yeah, I was always at Sunday school, the youth meetings, the things that we did there, the children's meetings, the rural ambassadors, the rural ambassadors, girl ambassadors, those things like that. And if you had asked me if I was a believer, I would have said, yeah, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I've been baptized. And yet, I was a lost man. And today, uh, it's been probably early 1900s, really, when this, the easy believism began to trickle into fundamental or biblical churches to where all you had to do was, do you believe this? Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe He died for your sins? Do you believe you know, that, uh, that uh, he, He's coming back and He's going to take you? Oh, yeah, I believe all those things. Okay, so then you baptize them, and then we immediately begin to tell them, well, you need to do this, you need to read your Bible, you need to come to church, you need to do this, you need to do that. And so, in some ways, uh, modern evangelism is, is not really preaching what Christ... We can go through the Romans road, and somebody can believe those things, and the reality is, if the new birth does not take place... It doesn't matter how many prayers we pray, how many pens we get at church, how many services we attend. Jesus Christ said, this must take place or you cannot enter to the kingdom of God. And so when I did get saved, I, didn't, I knew who Jesus was from a child. But the night that I got saved, something radical happened in my life to where all of a sudden now there's this strong influence in my life that was never there before that compelled me, a man that didn't go to church at all, to go to the second night meeting of a revival. I wanted to go. I couldn't wait to get off work to go to church and read my Bible. You know, it was just like uh, we loved going to church. And then I had to tell somebody, man, God, God, of course, they began to say, what's, what's up with you, man? You're different. And so this radical change that Jesus does, this is what chapter 3 and chapter 4 Paul's talking about. It's not, we're just not making a profession and then beginning to follow and do things for God because that's what the Pharisees did, and that's man's religion. Uh, Pastor Kenny has been using this phrase a lot lately. I don't know if you've picked it up in, in, in church, even on Wednesday nights, about born-againers. And, and the world is very quick, religious people, 
People that attend churches week after week, and not, we're not talking about people just out in the world, but people that faithfully attend church, oh, I'm not a born-againer. And sadly, <laughs> that's, a, that's a condemnation against them because as Christ said, you know, except a man be born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. And he goes on as you read through Paul's writings, he says, listen, circumcision, uncircumcision, all these rituals, baptism, these, these mean nothing. What matters is a new creature. That person that God transforms their life. And so, as you, as you come into chapter 5, don't lose sight of all these talking. He's talking about how glorious this new covenant is. God's got it in our heart. The, the, the drive that we have as believers is not, hey, I need to do this for God because if I don't do this for God, God's going to be upset with me. And I, I, I want God to bless me and I want God to punish me. That's, that's nothing but works. Paul is trying to set the stage here to say that God does something in this new covenant that transforms a person on the inside, and they began to follow him because they love him, because this passion that the Spirit of God now dwelling in us is welling up. I mean, it, it's wanting to magnify Jesus Christ and make him known, and now that Spirit is living inside of us. I mean, it's just a, it's an amazing thing. We're thinking, how in the world can God live in us? That's what the Bible teaches, and you and I get to enjoy the, the blessing and remnant of that is that Christ is in us. There's something going on in here. As much as my flesh wants me to do this, and sometimes I give in to it and do it, still there is this, this, this pressure, this pressing, this spirit that is challenging me, that is stirring me, that is making me feel awful when I don't do what Christ would have me to do. And it's not some work that we do to somehow appease God. It is just the natural flow of life as this spirit that is in us now lives out through us. So I want us to look at uh, a couple things tonight. So, so two, two words that we can kind of keep in our mind is, first of all, focus. Focus is what we look at, what we, what we set our attention on, we, we gaze on it, we, we lock in on it. And then perspective is once we lock in on something and we begin to look at it, perspective is how we think about that thing, okay? Um, of course, you know, Peter's up there on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus Christ is transfigured before him. He is locked in on Christ. Thou art the Christ, you know, the Son of, the, of, of God. It wants to stay there and build churches and just a tabernacle. Let's just worship God all the time. Uh, and so that's the idea uh, with this is that when we focus on something, our perspective changes. Now, since you don't remember what I preached about last time, I'll go ahead and, and remind you. We talked about beholding as in a glass, looking into the Word of God. And as we look at it, we see something. And as we see something, Christ says we're being changed into that, that image of what we see. Now, all of us, we live in a very busy world. We're at different stages of life, but it doesn't get any slower. And, and Satan is doing everything he can to keep our eyes not focused on Jesus Christ, and when we don't do that, our perspective on life, what's important, what's not important, uh, really, really gets skewed. So we're going to talk about, in chapter 5, three different things that we really need to, to focus on and make sure that we are thinking right according to these things. So the first thing, verse 1 through 9, we already read it, so I'm not going to read it again, but we're to be focusing... And, and really, <clears throat> that almost sounds like a work. It's not that we're to be focusing. When we are allowing Christ 
his right spot in our heart, we will be focusing on the eternal body. Okay? And, and he talks about that. He talks about this tabernacle. There again, he's going back to that Old Testament picture. You had a tent. It was a very transistory thing. It would move up, go here, go there. Uh, it was made out of skins and, and things like that. It was never designed to be permanent. And it's the same thing with our body, our earthly body. This, this is not permanent. Okay, it's, it's wearing out, it, it, it's getting all kinds of holes in it, uh, but it's kind of funny, uh, it, I guess it's just the way we are. Uh, God has placed in us the desire to live. If somebody comes up to you tonight and starts choking you, you're going to fight back. I don't care how spiritual you are, how much you love people want to see them saved, they start to choke you out, you're going to fight, because we want to breathe. Um, kind of like keeping that old pair of, of clothes, you know, jeans, t-shirt, whatever, that's completely worn out, needs to be thrown away, but it's our, it's our favorite. And it's kind of how we are in our flesh. We just, we love this thing. A uh, preacher friend of mine, he just passed here recently, uh, but he got diagnosed at 84 with leukemia. Uh, and so he took some treatments and, uh, you know, he was, he was just saying, he says, he says Pastor, he said, I just want to live. He said, I just want to live. I want to tell somebody about the Lord. You know, Paul says, listen, I would much rather leave and go be with Jesus, but to stay here is more needful for you. And so we see that, you know, there is a, there is a, a reality that we are in this earthly body, but, you know, we can become so focused on this earthly body, eating right, working out, doing things like that, taking care of the body that we neglect, the eternal body. And so he goes on and he says there's this, there's this kind of dilemma for while we're in this earthly body, he says, uh, we groan. Now, it's interesting, he says when he's talking about the temporal, uh, temporal body, the tabernacle is, is going to be dissolved. He said, we have a building, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And so, of course, we know the progress of when they lent, well, left the tabernacle, they built the temple. Okay, this was a foundation, it was a structure, it didn't move. Now, of course, we know as we uh, study the Bible that, of course, it got destroyed and got rebuilt. And actually, Solomon's temple, they haven't been able to find any remnants of that. It's Herod's temple now, the Wailing Wall and the things uh, that are there. But the temple was a, a more permanent structure, something that was built up. And it's, it's interesting that it says that it's a house not made with hands. And so, when we think about our earthly house... How was our earthly house formed? I mean, how did it come to be? The hands of man. But I mean, how did God start the first man? He took, he reached down into the dirt. He formed a man and he breathed into him, gave him the breath of life and man became a living soul. So God did that. Okay. And so when we think about our eternal body, who's going to build that? God. So it almost seems, why, why would he put this phrase there that it's not built with hands? Our eternal body is not built with hands. If you go over to, uh, you don't have to turn there, but you can just kind of keep this in your mind. Hebrews 9, 11 says, But Christ become a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. And if you look in your Strong's Concordance, that word building means creation. And so what... What uh, Paul is saying here is that the body that we're getting, not this body, the one we're getting, is not of this creation, okay? It's going to be something different because, of course, we know that this body fails, it feels pain and stuff like that. Of course, we know that's not in the eternal state. 
So the new body that we are getting is different in the fact that it's not of this creation that God created here. Okay, it's an eternal body, a body that is is different than the body, just like the temple was different than the tabernacle. Now, in that same note, people that are lost are going to be given a special body from God, too. Okay, any person in this body that was cast into hell will be consumed right away. But there will be a body fashion that will be able to endure the torment of hell forever. We can't even comprehend that, okay? Uh, But that's the reality, is that the bodies that we have now are going to be different from the ones that we have that are coming. And of course, Paul's talking about uh, the the spiritual body of the believer. Uh, And so our perspective in this earthly tent is that as we walk by faith, we want to walk in such a way that that pleases Him. Now, in verse number 9, he says... uh, that you know, we would rather be absent from the body and be present with the Lord. But he said, Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of Him. We may be accepted of Him. And so the, the striving is to be well-pleasing to Him. And in the works mindset, what we talked about earlier about people that believe the right things and are trying to work and do something for God, the mindset is, I've got to do something to, to make God accept me, you know, kind of like, I don't know, uh, you're, I had a wonderful, wonderful childhood. My dad is a great man, taught me all kinds of stuff in life, but I've been around uh, young men and, and women that, that have not had that, and they were spending their whole life, their, their father was hard on them, and so they labored and strived to somehow make daddy happy, just do something that maybe he would, would treat me better than he treated the, 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 maybe the other kids were treated good and they weren't. And so that's the mindset of a lot of people, that somehow we just got to do something to, to make God accept us. And if I can just, if I can just do better and, and pray more and read my Bible more, maybe God really, really will accept me. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about since God is allowing us to live here, continue to live, and still we're in this flesh. I want to live in such a way that my life really makes a difference for him. I want to be well-pleasing to him, not to gain his favor. And we're going to talk a little bit uh, about that uh, later. Uh, turn over real quickly. I do want you to see this one in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. Because a lot of, you know, I don't know if you've dealt with this. I know that I have uh, in my Christian life. Uh, this, this thing that I'm talking about, working to be accepted, um, it, it's, it's, it's kind of like being in a, you know, a dryer tumbler and you're just being thrown around and thrown around and you can never come to that place of peace in your soul where you really just feel like God is pleased with me, He's accepted with me. Uh, so in, in Ephesians chapter 1, if you look in verse number 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us into the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will." to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Now that last phrase there is powerful. It says, wherein He has made us accepted in the Beloved. Now what do you think 
the beloved there is. What's it talking about? We are accepted in the beloved. Where does our acceptance come from? Christ. Christ. That is the only reason God accepts us. There is no work that we can do to ever be accepted by God. I was, uh, wasn't that long ago, I was witnessing to a guy, and uh, he was just talking about how he'd been a good person and all this, and I asked him, I says, so let me ask you a question. I says, how many good works do you have to do to cover one sin? And you could just see the wheels turning, and he's just, they don't know. I mean, how, how could you know? I mean, how, how many good things, and the reality is, no matter how much good you do, you'll never cover one sin. And no matter how much good we do, we will never come to the place that we're accepted by God because of what we're doing. We're accepted by God because we are in Christ. When Christ, when, when God looks at us, He looks at us through His Son, through the righteousness of His Son. And that's the only reason that we're accepted. Okay, No matter what we do to try to, to find favor in Him apart from Christ, it's, it's simply it's, it's not possible. Um, we will uh, talk about this right there at that last verse in verse 21. We'll kind of come back to that. So that's talking about our focus. Our focus should be, God's leaving me here. I'm here today. If I wake tomorrow in this earthly body, I'm going to live in such a way that it will be well-pleasing to Him, that it will represent Him well. Not to be accepted of Him, because I'm already accepted. And, and we'll talk about something that really Satan tries to use in that, uh, to try to mess us up in our mind. And there's a lot of people that are just working and working and working and trying to, to be accepted of God. If you have ever read the story of Martin Luther, God started working, working in Martin Luther's heart. He's in Catholicism, and, and he, he really began to get under conviction. He would go up, he would, he would fail, he felt like fail God all day long. He would get up into his chamber at night, and he would take a whip and whip himself punish himself because he just wanted to be accepted by God. He wanted God to be pleased with him, and he knew he, this flesh was fighting against him. Well, of course, Martin Luther came out of the Catholic Church, and he's the first one that began to really talk about being saved by grace through faith. And it was just a total turn from Catholicism. No, no, you've got to work to be accepted of God and please God. And that is, that is, a, that is a bondage, and that is a weight that God does not want us to be in. So if, if you get anything to take away from this tonight, understand the reason that God has accepted you is Jesus Christ. You can't be any more accepted than you are accepted if you're born again. You're, you're, you're as accepted as you can get uh, in Jesus Christ. Uh, so the second thing I want to look at back over in 2 Corinthians, so we are focusing on uh, using our body to be well-pleasing to the Lord, that our perspective is, Okay, that I'm living in such a way that knowing one day I'm going to put off this body and I'm going to be with my Lord. But while I'm here, it's needful that I, I live for you. Live for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Live for the people that are lost. So 2 Corinthians, if you look down in verse number 10 and 11. I'll get back over there. All right. So then he says, uh, we're, we're laboring uh, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according that he has done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your conscience. So, 
This, this first uh, words there in verse 10, for we must all talk about how it is inevitable that we as believers, if you're born again, if you're truly a child of God, you must appear before the judgment of Christ. And he says we must all. It's comprehensive. If you are a believer, if you're truly born again, you will be at this judgment seat. Okay? But there again, we're talking about focus. So Paul has changed from the temporal body to this event. This event that's going to take place that we need to fix our mind upon and our perspective needs to be, okay, as I gaze upon this, what am I supposed to take away? What is, what is this looking upon this event that is supposed to impact me and direct my life? Uh, Paul's ambition and drive, you can see it through all of his uh, uh, writings, was to be ready for this event. He talks about it through his writings, that he knows that one day he's going to stand before Jesus Christ, this one who he had persecuted, this one now he loved, un, just uh, unbelievable. His life was committed to him. When you see all the things that he talked about that happened to him, the beatings, all those things like that, he says, listen, I know I'm going to stand before him, and I want to do everything that I can to show him on that day how much I love him. And that's the reality. It's not so. There again will be accepted. No. I just want to know, I want him to know how much he means to me. You say, well, Brother Kerry, doesn't he already know that? Yeah, he knows that. But we're talking about the perspective of our, our life. My wife and I will be married, June will be married 36 years. And we were just uh, talking, you know, uh, on our way back, we went to Williamsburg last weekend. And, uh, you know, my wife knows that I love her. She knows I, I am in love with her. I'm dedicated to her. She, she's the world to me. But you know what I do? I still take her out to nice dinners. You know, I treat her right. Some nights, you know, I'm sitting there and, you know, she's made supper. So you know what I do? I get up and I wash the dishes. You say, we don't have to do that. She would do that. I know she would. But I just want to do, use every opportunity. That was a little hint, guys. I want to use every opportunity that I can to just let her know how much I love her. You know, and, and it does, and that's what Paul's talking about there. He's wanting to do everything that he can to just show the realness of his love for Jesus Christ. Now, I want to talk just a few minutes on this passage about some misconstrued ideas about this event. Um, I got saved in 1990, and uh, within a year I was traveling around sharing my testimony. Uh, I started sharing a little bit from the Word, and uh, so I've been in church, you know, pretty much the last 32 years. And I have heard this event preached and preached and preached and preached as sure as many of you have. And the typical presentation of it is that basically it's, it's an event to where there's been this great race and there's been this great sportings event and there are judges up on there and he's just giving awards for all the good stuff that we've done. Now surely that is a part of the judgment seat of Christ. But I think as we look at the scriptures tonight, you're going to see it's a lot more bigger than that. It's not just going to be this great birthday party where everybody gets gifts and everybody's just so happy and the festivities are great. Because it is a judgment seat, okay? Uh, and so the word, or in the scriptures, you see as we look at these passages tonight, this one we just read, and then in 1 Corinthians 3, you'll see that there is a positive and there's a negative. There's good and there's bad, okay? It's not just, okay, God's just going to forget all about all the things that were vain and useless that we did with our life, and just it's no big deal. I think as you'll see through the study, you'll realize, wow, 
Maybe my perspective on this event needs to change as we really look at what the Bible says the event says and, and not sometimes. It's not that preachers, I think, are being deceptive or anything like that. It's just we, and I've done it myself, uh, you'll hear something preached and it's really good, so you're like, wow, man, that's good, and then you preach it. Uh, but then when you begin to study and get the context, you're like, wow, I don't know if that was really on point of what that passage meant. So judgment seat in the scriptures is, is the word, sure, y'all know it, right? What's the word for judgment seat? The judgment seat of Christ is the bema seat, okay? And all that means is that's the Greek word for that seat, okay? And so the Greek culture, what this was, it was an elevated platform where athletes were awarded. So that's where you get when, when preachers are preaching about that and talking about this, this platform where you'll get rewards, that's what it's, that's using. But if you look at the scriptures, not one time in the Bible is the word bema used for an athletic award ceremony. Not once. You can write these down if you want to. Uh, the first reference we see of the word bema is at Pilate's judgment seat. Of course, he's judging Christ. Matthew 27, 19 and John 19, 3. The second time we see it is Herod's judgment seat. Acts 12, 21. Then in chapter 25, verse 6 of Acts, Festus' judgment seat. And then the last one in Acts 25, 10, of course, Paul is before Caesar's judgment seat. And every verse that is dedicated to this word bema, the same word that Jesus has used for the judgment seat of Christ, is always a judicial hearing for the guilt or, you know, freedom of the person that is there. Okay, And as we look at Scripture there, 1 Corinthians 3 and then 2 Corinthians 5 that we're talking about, it's clear that there's a reward for things done good. But we cannot forget about, as we're looking at this judgment seat, focusing on it, our perspective must be, hey, there is also going to be part of this judgment that vain, wasteful, useless things are going to be brought up. I mean, we're going to be judged for the things done in our body, whether they be good or bad. And so uh, Romans 14 talks about this, uh, about if you remember in chapter 14 of Romans, they're talking about judging your brother over a holy day, over things that they eat, um, and, and that we shouldn't be doing that. Why? Because we, we have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And so the whole picture there about judging in the Bible now never gives the idea of this athletic games to where all these wreaths and, and stuff are given to people, although I do believe the Bible does clearly talk about rewards at this, this judgment. We shouldn't be using the Greek word, you know, as the main thrust of how this judgment seat is going to be. Um, so back over in 1 Corinthians 3, I've mentioned that to you a couple times. I just want you to see what this says because this is... Uh, this is pretty clear, too. So 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. Uh, actually, let me start in verse 10. So uh, Paul says there, According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones wood, hay, stubble. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Now, it doesn't take you long 
to connect these two passages, 2 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 3. Every man's work's going to be tested. It's going to be tested by fire, and we're going to find out what sort it is, good, bad, which either one that it is. And he says, if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. And so the judgment of works here is not for sins. We're not, if a person gets to this judgment seat and all of their works are burned up, their soul is still saved, even though it's by fire. That means all of the vain, useless works are gone, but they're still saved. And so that kind of is an awful spot to be in to think that Jesus Christ saved us. He changed our life. We love Him, and we live out however many days He gives us after that great transaction and have nothing to give Him in return. I was probably about eight or nine years old. Uh, we weren't, didn't have a whole lot of money growing up. I didn't, I didn't think we were poor because most of the people around us lived the same way we did. You know, you just didn't really think about that then. Uh, but I do remember this. My, one of my best friends, Mark, uh, had a birthday party, and we were getting ready. I was going to his birthday party. Mom and Dad didn't have the money to buy a gift, and they told me it'll be okay, okay. There's, there's going to be a lot of kids there. They, they won't even know. And so I was sitting. My buddy Mark's down here. I'm on the other end of the table, and there's kids all around the table, and he goes through opening all the gifts and everything. And he got to the, to the end, and he looked right down the table at me. He says, Carrie, where's your gift? And I felt about that high. And I, I was, I was, I, I, when I got home, I, I was so mad at my parents. I was like, I just can't believe y'all made me go because I didn't want to go. Nobody would know. But I know the shame that I felt because I didn't have a gift for my buddy. How much more so Christ? And so remember, we're talking about focus and perspective. And so what Paul is trying to say, hey, listen, guys, this is the greatest event we're going to stand before, looking at the Lord that died for us, that changed our life, that transformed us, and we want to live in such a way that we can just throw all kinds of, of gifts that he did through us for his glory. There's an old song, uh, some of you might have heard it, it's, we'll cast our crowns at his nail-scarred feet, all joy complete in his presence sweet, eternity's greatest pleasure will be casting our crowns at his feet. I mean, what an amazing thing. And that's what we're talking about perspective here. And so our works are going to be tried. The pure works, that which is done from a pure heart that Christ has done through us, gold, silver, precious stones. That which we've done to be seen of men, okay? We're having a big offering at church. And so, you know what we do? We come and we put our offering in there. But, you know, we leave our check open and lay it face up so when people come and put their money in, they can see how much we gave. It's a good thing to give to the work of the Lord. But that work right there is probably going to be burned up. Okay? That when Jesus talked about people, he says, if you do your things to be seen of men, you have your reward. He didn't say we don't have a reward. He says the pat on the back from the men and the people walking around thinking that you're somebody, that's your reward. But when you stand before me, there's going to be nothing uh, to put there. But it's interesting in here in, in 1 Corinthians uh, 3, it says something that... For me, I believe really as far as perspective and focus on this, this event really opens my eyes. He says, if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. That means if, if God puts the fire to our works and it's vain and useless, we did it to be seen of men, we did it for our own selfish reasons, whatever. He says that we're going to suffer loss. And it's interesting, there again in your concordance, if you look it up, it means to affect with damage to receive injury. Now, that seems very odd for the judgment seat of Christ, especially the way that we've heard it preached. 
I mean, that it's just going to, you're going to stand before God, He's going to reveal your life, and he's going, to, he's going to reward you for all the things that you've done for Him. But the Scriptures say that if a man's works are burned, that means burned up, if it's wood, hay, stubble, that this man is going to suffer loss. And, and when you look at this word used in the Scriptures, the idea is that of, 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 of agony and hurting because of what's been lost. And so I kind of thought about this. Think about tonight. Whenever things were the greatest they were in your family, you know, there was a time where my wife and kids and everybody was in the home. Uh, you know, we, were, we sang together. Our, our whole life was wrapped up in this little house, you know, and all of our pictures, all of our, everything we had was in that house. If I was to turn into my driveway tonight on the way home and every, my wife, my children, everything that I owned in life was burned to the ground, how do you think I would feel? I think that's what he's saying here. I believe what people, when they talk about the judgment seat of Christ, they kind of advance it to the eternal state where there'll be no more tears, no sorrow, no sadness. But that's not here. Okay? The scriptures say that at this event that we're supposed to be getting our perspective on how we want to face this event, is there's going to be things in our life that burn up because we didn't do them for Christ, and it's going to, it's going to cause us hurt. It's going to be, and, and you just think about that, as we talked about not having a gift to give Christ. And so I think, as far as perspective goes, if all we're thinking that the judgment seat of Christ is is just about getting all these things, then the Apostle Paul would have left out the or bads, or suffering loss. They wouldn't be in the Scriptures. If all it was is that we're just getting good stuff. And so when we think about the judgment seat of Christ tonight, we should listen. I'm looking at this event... I know that I'm headed there because Christ has changed my life. And so my perspective is, how do I want to be there that day? You say, well, you know, I've already looked at my life, and I think there's probably a lot of stuff that may get burned up. Okay. <laughs> so our perspective is, let's strive from now on that we're going to have so many gifts because we're going to let Christ continue to change our heart, humble us, Help us live for the right things, do the right things. We're not doing things to be seen of men. We're wanting Christ to really be exalted. And then we stand before Him this, that day and we're just able to... Because of the great love that we, that we have for Him. And, and as He closes that in verse number 11, He says, Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, there again... I see, and a lot of the commentaries, you'll see guys jump from the judgment seat of Christ right to the great white throne judgment. And Paul mentions nothing about that here. It's clear context that he's talking about the judgment seat of Christ. What I'm doing here tonight, sharing with you, listen, we're going to stand before Christ that day and give an account of our life, and it's talking about the, the, the reverence and awe of the Lord. That if we know that day, we, we understand how that day is going to be. We're focusing now upon the judgment seat of Christ properly. And our perspective is, listen, we've got to, we've got to warn other people because there's a lot of Christians that aren't really living for Jesus Christ. There, there are people that I know that are going to stand before this judgment and they may have nothing to show for their life. I'm not judging them. I'm trying to motivate them, persuade them to get a different perspective about this day that he's just been talking about. So that's the focus of eternal judgment. And the last thing, how am I doing on time, John? 
Ten minutes. All right, so we got to go quick. Second Corinthians, which is bad because this is the best. This is the best. Uh, Best area of the scripture. So uh, when he talks, uh, get back over in Second Corinthians, uh, the last part about uh, the transformation. We kind of hit around that in the beginning point, but in verse seventeen we see a radical transformation of the new birth. Okay, I already mentioned about people believing, being baptized, uh, and not being born again. Uh, but this this thing that God does in the heart of men is a radical change. God of course, we know, must draw man. Um, there's a lot of different beliefs about how someone gets saved. Uh, get, do, does, does God lead them and then they believe? You know, does God give them faith and then they're saved to believe? Uh, but the reality is, who's ever saved has got to be born of God. God does a radical transformation in that life to where they are never the same. They're changed forever. Okay, that's what he's talking about. That if any man be in Christ, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. It's a radical transformation. As much as we want to see our children saved young, all of my children made professions of faith before the age of 12. And then when they got up to be adults and they began to be able to make decisions on their own, my oldest daughter, she kind of began to, to go and feel things out. She never really got into the wild stuff. Uh, but now she's back. She loves Jesus Christ and she serves him. She loves him for who he is. And my other two kids, not so much yet. Okay? But no matter what age a person is, whether they're saved when they're 10, 11, 12, 20, 30, 78... There's a transformation. The Holy Spirit of God comes into that life and they're changed. That is the only salvation that the Bible supports. Now, should we deter a child from praying a prayer in their own? No. No. If, if God is dealing with their heart, they want to pray. But the reality is we don't give them verses and just keep encouraging them. To, well, you know, you, you're really living like you're not saved. But, you know, the, you believe this, don't you? And you believe this, don't you? Yeah, yeah, I believe that. And, but the reality is you can believe all the right things and still be lost we want them if i had anything to do over again with my children when we first got saved you know we encouraged them to 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 get their heart right with christ we taught them all the things to do and what not to do as good parents do but i really would have gone back to when i first got saved and how the holy spirit began to teach me change my heart make me a forgiving person, make me, you know, guide me into loving the Word and loving the Lord and loving church and all that, instead of saying, okay, well, you need to go right back to that old covenant. Make sure you do this. Put this on your wrist and this on your head and, and pray these times and go to church every day. Don't do this on the Sabbath and all this. And they get all of this stuff to do to be accepted to God. And the reality is if the Holy Spirit is not in there fueling that, it's just nothing to it. Uh, so God's got to draw men. He draws them to the reality of their sinfulness and the hope of heaven. He draws them to the reality of himself as a Savior. And when a person sees himself as, as God is showing them what they look like in his presence, the only thing they can do is cry out for mercy. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Titus 3, 5 is interesting. It says, not by works which you have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Okay? Jesus is talking in John, and people go and they say this is water baptism. He says you've got to be born of water, you've got to be born of the Spirit. 
the cleansing and the filling is the two-part immediate transaction that takes place when we get saved. God is not going to take up residence in a life that is stained with sin. So as we cry out to Him for mercy, according to His mercy, He saves us. He washes us and He fills us. Boom, it happens that quick. And that person's forever changed. The sin issue is dealt with and the Spirit of God takes up residence in the soul. And automatically, the Holy Spirit begins to conduct His life through you. You begin to get convicted about things you were never convicted about. You begin to desire things you never desired. That is this new, new experience in verse number 17 that it's talking about. And so then back to four, verse 14, he says, So the love of Christ constrains us or compels us. That's what we're talking about. The Holy Spirit now in us, driving us, compelling us. One of the definitions in Strong's is it's, it's a cattle squeeze. If you've ever been around a farm, you know, they got this big, uh, kind of like little uh, corral. And they get all the cows in there, and it, it necks itself down to where one cow gets in the chute. They're pressured. They can only go one direction. And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing. He is working that we're only going to go one direction. He wants us to follow Jesus Christ. And He just keeps putting Christ before our eyes. And when the, the old cows are, are like we are, you know, kind of, we want to turn around and go the other way. It's just pushing us. You can't go that way because the pressure behind you of the other end, they're just pushing you towards this one end. And that's, that's that what the new birth does. And so to kind of wrap up here, because um, I have a long way to go, uh, look at the, the couple things. He talks about the compelling of Jesus Christ, what Christ has done. We were dead, Christ saved us, He gave us life, and we realize some things now. Look in verse number 16. This is a verse that I, have, I don't know how many times I've read uh, 2 Corinthians since I've been saved. It's been many, many times. For years I would read my Bible through. Uh, other years I would just read through the New Testament, just keep reading through the New Testament. So I don't know how many times I read through it. He's talking about the new birth the change that we have in us. And then it just seems like he goes off script and says, Wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet henceforth we know him no more. Okay, so the Holy Spirit's in us, we're compelled to do for God, and now we don't know men the way we used to, we don't know Christ the way we used to, and then it's just the light came on. When we get saved, we don't look at men the way we used to. Before I get saved... I would be going to hell with the guys all around me. We didn't go out doing the wild stuff that we were doing and say, oh man, I better witness to that guy because he's on his way to hell. You didn't even think about it. But immediately after the new birth, I didn't look at men the same way anymore. I looked at them and I was like, they need Jesus Christ. I need to pray for them. I need to talk to them. And he says the same thing. After this new birth experience, we don't look at Jesus the same way. I knew Jesus was the Son of God and God was God as far back as I can remember because my parents took us to church and we read our Bible. So I never remember a time in my life that I didn't know that Jesus was God's Son and God was God. But after I got saved and this, this new birth, of chapter, verse 17, happened, I don't look at Jesus Christ the same way anymore. He's not just some figure in history. that He, he lives in me. And he's transformed my life. And that's what he's talking about. That is the, 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 the new birth is so radical that it can't take place in your life and not change you. And that's why, there again, we're talking about perspective and focus tonight. We need to be very, very careful when people are, are under conviction or God is dealing with them to not just get them, do you believe this, do you believe this, pray this prayer. And if they do, to, to be 
caring enough about them to do follow-up and say, hey, listen, what's God doing in your life? Man, you're not going to believe it. God laid on my heart this person that I had sinned against, done things wrong years ago, and there's just this strong urging, i got to go talk to them and make this thing right. You know, we have that happen. You know, we have that. We know that. We say something unkind or mean to somebody, our wife, or children. We get in there and we just can't live in it because the Holy Spirit is just saying, listen, that's wrong. Go make that right. And so it's a radical change. Now, so to finish in verse number 21, because I said I was going to go back there, God has reconciled, or Christ has reconciled us to God, and then He has given us the word of reconciliation, which this word is not just the word of God, the word that Christ has written on your heart. Remember when Jesus healed the guy on the Sabbath? And the Pharisees came to, uh, to, to question him. And they were saying, oh, this guy's a sinner. He said, listen, I don't know if he's a sinner or not, but all I know is once I was blind, now I see. And so, you know, people, you can go out here in the world and you're trying to testify and witness to them. They, they just give you all these crazy, hey, listen, I don't know about all that. Let me tell you about Jesus Christ and what he did in my life. That's in the heart. But then you also have the reconciliation of the word. And the ministry of reconciliation, of reconciliation, that's what the Holy Spirit is doing for us. So how does Satan get us to stop from this ministry? First of all, he wants us to doubt our salvation. Okay? I don't even know how many times since I've been a believer that Satan has come and tried to get me because of a certain thing I've done or not done that I, well, you don't even know God. If you knew God, you wouldn't do that. Okay? And I go right back to the scriptures and I go right back to the new birth uh, that happened in my life, I know that Jesus Christ saved me, He forgave me, and He changed my life. You've got to go back there. He's wanting you to quit uh, in this work. He's wanting you to, to depart. But He also not just wants to confuse you about your salvation, but confuse you about God and your relationship to Him. How many times have you gotten overwhelmed by something that you did, and you felt like you were a long way from God, and you felt like God wasn't hearing your prayers, and that he was just upset with you, and he wasn't going to really deal with you. We do that. We do it. We just get, well, you know, God, I've just been asking you to help me. I keep failing, I keep failing, I keep failing. God is always there again. Back to what we talked about. I'm not going to elaborate on it long, but we have to come to the understanding of how God sees us. God never sees us but perfect in Jesus Christ. I've heard a lot of people talk about salvation, and if you die right now and you're not completely righteous and completely perfect, you can't go to heaven. And the only way that is possible is because we are clothed with Jesus' righteousness. It's an imputed righteousness. Whether I fail today, if I walk in victory today, God does not see me any different. He sees me completely righteous in His Son. Now, in 1 John, when I first started coming here last year, Pastor Kenny was talking about this in 1 John. If you look at starting in chapter 1, you go down through the first chapter, he's talking about, have this fellowship. We've touched him. We've seen him. Oh, oh, we want you to have this fellowship. And he gets to the bottom of the chapter, and he says, if we sin, we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You say, well, I thought you said we were always perfectly righteous. Why do we need to confess our sins? Because of fellowship alone. Our sins never separate us from Christ. They never can take us out of His righteousness. We are always completely righteous. But our relationship will be hindered if we do things against Him and we don't ask Him to forgive us. Just like in the marriage relationship. 
it would do us all well if you offend your spouse to make it right quickly. You say, but we're still married. Yeah, but miserably. So why even be that way? God does not want us to be feeling miserable. He wants us to be in excellent fellowship with Him. He wants a perfect fellowship just like He wants a perfect righteousness. So a perfect, our focus and our perspective on our body, on the judgment seat of Christ, and then on the transformation that has taken place in our lives.